So if you have your Bible, can you turn to John chapter (laughs) 6? And we'll be looking at, we're starting at verse 22. And we'll be reading through verse 40. John chapter 6, starting at verse 22. The word of the Lord reads, The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to endure into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Father, again, we come before you. Lord, we need you. Father, we need you even now to open our ears and our hearts to the depth of your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be moving in each individual soul in this room, including my own that you would make known to us the glory of your son. May he be lifted high. God, we pray, Lord, that you would allow your word to be impressed upon our hearts, that you would be glorified in it. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hugh Hefner, before dying, was quoted as saying, an afterlife would be a really good deal. Yeah, I would vote in favor for that. But in the meantime, I urge one and all to live this life as if there is no reward in the afterlife and do it in a moral way that leaves this world a little bit better than how you found it. Hugh Hefner, the man who led 
an immoral life, obviously, and led millions, if not billions, along with them in that immoral life of destruction. A man who said that if there is an afterlife, great, but really just live our life as if there's none. He lived this very saying, did he not? He believed there was nothing else afterwards, and he lived his life accordingly. He lived as if this world was all that there is. And he made that dire mistake. We know that death is certain. I mean, you can evade taxes for a period of time, maybe even your whole life if you're good at it, but you can't evade death. Death is certain. And when you reach that moment of death, at that finite moment of time where everything here on earth seemed at one time to be so important, at that finite moment of death, all that is here really is nothing. You arrive here with nothing, and you take nothing with you. Now, we can sit here and mock Hugh Hefner, but how often do we spend most of our time consumed by the things that ultimately do not last? How much of our time and our thoughts and our thinking is consumed with things really that aren't really that important? Even more, how much of our pursuits in life center on vain pleasure and vain satisfaction? How much of our life is centered on these things that really, at the end of our life, we're on our deathbed, really mean nothing? So where is our greatest hope found? If that is true, that this life, which is so important, but means nothing at the end, where is our greatest hope found? We just read it, but in the words, words of our very own Lord, it's found in him. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This is a crucial discourse in Jesus' ministry and really one that centers on his personhood and messiahship as Lord. This is an important dialogue here that we just read. Now, in order for us to get the the, the central point, really what he's driving down here, let's get a little background here because the the text kind of comes in where he started off. It obviously comes in the middle. There's something that happened beforehand. And it begins here with the people desperately looking for Jesus, as it says. If they were really looking for him, they were trying to find him. And it's not just a bunch of people. The text describe it as a crowd that was looking for him. There's a crowd that stood on the other side of the sea, and they were looking desperately for one man. And who was that? Looking for Christ. But before we go on in this, look what happened right before. What made them look so desperately for Jesus? What piqued their interest? What caused them to look for Christ with this, with this vigorous zeal? What caused that? In the beginning of chapter 6, has one of the, the big miracles that we even learn in Sunday school that we know about pretty well, is the feeding of the 5,000 and how Christ fed the 5,000. It says at the very beginning, of he fed the 5,000 with five fish and two, le- sorry, five loaves of bread and two fish. And you see right after that great miracle, they, they saw that he had really nothing to give them. And yet he fed 5,000, says 5,000 men, so not even counting women and children. So he fed thousands with just these five loaves and two fish. And if that's the case, they saw this like, whoa, who is this great man? But the response was not just amazement. The response moved them even more because in verse 14 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So they saw this, okay, this, this is not just an ordinary man. This is, this is someone special. That he fed thousands of people. Who is this? 
And so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus kind of fled. So they, they, they saw this great miracle, and they, their immediate response was like, whoa, this is a great person. Hey, we got to get him on our side. Let's make him king. He can rule this nation. He'll take down Rome. He'll, yeah, we, we can get him back. So, of course, our Lord, knowing this, he secretly escapes. And then he sends the disciples along the other side of the sea. So they take a boat to the other side of the sea, and they cross the sea. And then what happens next is only known by his disciples and in us, because we have the narrative here. But Jesus eventually gets the other side of the sea. But how does he get on the other side of the sea? It's not by boat. <laughs> he walks across the sea. And this is another great miracle we see here of Christ where he walks on water to get to them. So naturally, coming back to our, our passage, the crowd here, they're looking for Jesus. They said, okay, we, we saw he didn't get on boat. I mean, this, look how intently they were looking for him. They knew that his disciples got on boat and crossed the sea, but they also knew he wasn't with them. So they were looking. And he said, oh, not only was he with them, Christ didn't leave afterwards. So they knew he's still somewhere on this side of this island. He's still here with us. So we got to find him. But yet they realize he's not there. So it's evident that they were desperate because they were watching him intently. And so not seeing him as the disciples, they board, it says, the text says, they board own small boats that had come right there and they crossed the sea in order to find him. This is, a, this is a, an intense pursuit. I mean, talk about paparazzi, right? Like they, they see this great sign, like, oh, where's he at? Where's he at? Where's he at? Cameras, cameras flashing. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? And finally, they're anxious to find him. And then verse 25, when they do find him, they say, Rabbi, wait a minute. When did you get here? When I was on the other side. I said, you did not cross. You, were, you didn't get in a boat. You weren't with your disciples. How did you get here? Rabbi, how'd you get here? Where'd you come from? We, 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 didn't, we were watching you intently. You did not come here. So how did you get here? And so in this passage now that we have here, Jesus affirms for them that he is the bread of life. And as the bread of life, he embodies three realities that we'll see. As the bread of life, he embodies three realities. The first reality we're going to look at is he embodies the perfection of divinity. That he embodies the perfection of divinity. In other words, he's perfectly divine, 100% deity, truly God, very God. He embodies the perfection of divinity. So we'll spend a little bit more time on this first reality because it really sets up the context for us for the remainder of the passage. So they say, Rabbi, how'd you get here? Where'd you come from? How did you get here? And he responds to them, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now notice how he begins this phrasing first. Truly, truly. This is said numerous times by Christ in the Gospels. Truly, truly. In other words, literally, amen and amen. Amen, amen. In other words, what it means is, is whatever a statement was said by, by the Jews, whenever a statement was said at the end of it, a prayer or a statement at the end of it, they would say, amen, let it be. Right? So we say, even today, amen, let it be so. Truly. So they knew that phrasing. But they would say it at the end of a sentence, at the end of a statement, that what which was said, I agree to, amen, let it be done. And yet, we see here, the confidence of our Lord can speak, and before he even says what he's going to say, he starts it off with, truly, truly, amen, amen. 
In other words, the very words that will follow what I say will come and will happen with certainty. Amen and amen. That's a bold statement. No man would do that. No man would start off a statement and say, hey, let me give you a prophecy. Truly, truly. Right? Like, okay, whatever comes past, that better happen. But Christ can do it, and he does. He says, truly, truly. What does he say following that? I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate loaves and were filled. Now, note here, he never answered their question. They asked, wait, how did you get here? When did you get here? He never answered their question. I mean, you think he could respond by saying, you know, well, you know how I got here? I walked on water. <laughs> like, he could easily answer them and tell them that. So why didn't he tell them that I walked across, I got here on water? If you're impressed with five loaves and two, bre- uh, five loaves and two fish, look what I can do with the water, right? If that's what you're impressed with, let me tell you what I can do even above that. But instead, in- instead of telling them how he actually got there, Jesus rebukes them. They ask a question. How did you get a simple question? He rebukes them. Why did he rebuke them? Why did he rebuke them? It's because that their, their motive for seeking him was off. They wanted to look for Christ. They wanted, to, where did he go? Where can he go? Where is he at? And he rebukes them because their motive was spoiled. Then what he says throughout the next, these next eight verses really focuses on turning their hearts away from earthly things and that, that bring zero fulfillment and turning their hearts to really what is of most importance. He's aware of their motives and Jesus rebukes them because ultimately they were seeking the wrong person. They were seeking him for the wrong reason, I should say. That they were seeking him not because of who he is, but they're seeking him for what he can give them. That they were looking to the loaves, they were looking to the fish, they were looking to the kingdom, their earthly kingdom. What can this man do for me? Let's find him. Let's seize him and make him our own so he can do the works for us. So they were seeking him not because they saw the miracle he did, but because the miracle filled their bellies. They were moved not by full hearts, but by full stomachs. Now let us be warned before we go further that one can seek Christ, Jesus, and have the wrong heart and the wrong motive. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, sees him as Lord. Lord, that one can seek and find and, and go after this Christ and yet have selfish motives. That how, what can Jesus do to make my life better? What can Jesus do to make my life good and fun? What can Jesus do to make my life pleasurable? What can this God do for me? They saw the signs, they saw the miracles, but what really was the purpose of miracles? Jesus did multiple miracles. You see here in the Gospel of John itself, miracle after miracle after miracle. What were the purpose of these miracles? These miracles or signs, you can call them, they really were meant to authenticate the message so that they would see that he truly is the Messiah. That from the start of John's Gospel to the end, John is is, is presenting Christ. This is the Son of God. And so he's presenting this message and supporting with all the miracles that Christ did. From starting with, with the water into wine to walking on the water. All these things happen so that you may believe that he truly is the Messiah. That what he says is true because look what he did. That these signs were meant to authenticate that message. That he is the Son of God. I mean, you see all the signs. John, 
John chapter 2, verse 11, you go back a couple chapters, it says that this is the beginning of his signs, miracles. Jesus did in, in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples then believed in him. That the signs were done, so they believed in him. John 2, 23, you go down a few verses. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. How? Observing his signs, which he was doing. John chapter 3, verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, comes to him by night and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That these signs were meant to point to the fact that what I am saying is true. That I am truly come down from heaven. That I am God in the flesh. These signs were meant to, to, to corroborate that very assertion of deity. But they, this crowd here, they have not understood them, these signs and the quality as signs as they were that pointed to him as a spiritual Messiah. Their primary interest was in their stomachs that had been filled. They saw those signs not as pointing to his deity and who he is in his person, but they saw those signs as what can this man do for me? How can he meet my need? That they were focused on a God who can meet their personal material needs. But Jesus did not come to overturn their their current political system. He came to save them from their sins. That was his mission. And in order to understand this, they needed to understand that the man they were talking to was not just a man. That he is the God-man. In order for them to understand the primary mission, that what the purpose of these signs were meant to accomplish, in order for them to understand that, they first had to understand who they were talking to. That they were not just talking to a prophet that they were talking to God, very God, God in the flesh, that they were encountering God. And as the God-man, they they should be seeking him and not what materials he can provide. And being perfectly divine as he is, it signifies to us that he came down from where? Above. That if he is divine, he came down from above. That he's not just an earthly ruler, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. That if you understood who I am, you wouldn't be looking for vain things as if, like food or national security. If you understood who I am, your focus wouldn't be on these things. And the truth is, obviously, that we know this, but what they were ultimately looking for, Jesus says that this is ultimately bankrupt, that it perishes. It means nothing. That all the things that are on your heart right now, all the things that you're seeking me for, those things that you're, you're desiring and you're working for, they will ultimately perish and die, and you will too if you don't turn from those things. Because look how he says in, in the next verse, in verse 27. He says, after rebuking them for their motive for coming to him, he says, do not work for that food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. That all these these things, this this food, the, the bread, the loaves that I multiplied, even those things will perish. But rather, set your heart on that which lasts. Set your heart on the things eternal. Even more, set your heart on him whom the Father has set his seal, he says. In other words, the, 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 seal, I, the, the seal being the idea of one who the Father has approved, has set his approval upon. The idea of having a seal, like a certification that certifies that he is the real Messiah, the Son of God. That, that this was certified, this was approved, this was authenticated, not only through works, but even through John the Baptist's. 
that John the Baptist testified to him. His own works of, 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 of miracles testified of that. The very father testified of that in his baptism. That all these things you see in chapter 5 when he's, he's speaking with the Jews, these are all the witnesses of the fact that I am who I, said, who, I, who I said I am. The father witnesses to it. These works that I do witness to it. John the Baptist attests to this. And even scripture also is a witness to this. All these things point to me and who I am. That I am who I said I am. So seek this food that Jesus says. Seek this food that doesn't perish, but seek food that lasts, that comes down from above, heavenly food. Seek that. The natural response is, if I were to say, there's food that lasts, food that comes from heaven, food that has no expiration date, seek this food. The natural response is, okay, how do I get that food? Great. Yeah, I want food that lasts. Who doesn't want food that lasts? The lines at Costco are crazy. Like, I don't want to go back. Like, I want food that lasts. How do I get that? If that's the case, Jesus answers that. He he says, you see here that that food that happens, it comes from above. The Son of Man will give to you. Verse 28 Verse 29, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So their response is, how do I do and how do I get this bread? How do I work for it in verse 28? What works do I work so that I can do the works of God? What can I do? What can I earn? How, How much money do I have to pay to accomplish? What must I do to get this free, this eternal bread? What what kind of work must I put in? Is this overtime you're talking about? Is this double time? Like, what do I do to get this bread? And Jesus answers it simply. He says, you can't work and can't do anything. This work is not a work you can do. But this work is simply the work of faith, so to speak. It's believe in him. Believe in the bread that's come down. If you want the bread that has come down from heaven, you simply believe in that bread that has come down from heaven, so to speak. You can't do anything to eat it. You can't do anything to receive it. You can't do anything to work for it. But instead, Jesus says, believe then in that divine one whom he has sent. Now, I think this is pretty plain and simple right here. We know you can't earn and work for salvation, right? We know this to be true. But the response of the Jews in this this discourse here is they say, okay, I can't work for it. So I think they're, they're, they're... Mind's inclined to think this man is claiming to be a little divine. He's claiming some sort of upper status, right? He's, he's claiming to be a, a big-time prophet. But look how they respond to that. Because if that's the case, if you're saying, okay, come down from above, look how they, look how they challenge him, so to speak, in verse 30. They said to him then, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? In other words, if you're claiming that there's some sort of great bread we can have, you're claiming these things, what works do you do so that we can believe you? Well, did you not just see the loaves and the fish that were multiplied? Like, isn't that the reason you were seeking me? You saw I fed thousands upon thousands. It's, it's, it's stunning to me that they would see that and they would still ask him, well, what works do you perform? It's insulting. But even more, it shows the fact that they weren't looking for works to authenticate. They weren't looking for that. He could have done any work he could have done, and they still wouldn't have believed. 
their hearts were not in the right place. They weren't seeking him for the right reason. They were saying, okay, you're saying this, well then do that. But even more, the substance of the question here is what works do you perform? Because afterwards, verse 31, he says, our fathers, they ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. So immediately, who's he comparing them to? He's comparing him to Moses. He said, okay, if you're claiming to be great, well, you know, Moses, he gave us bread. He gave us bread too. But that bread is also from heaven. I mean, you multiply the boy's bread, <laughs> right? I mean, that's essentially what it's saying. Our father gave us manna from heaven. He, they gave us bread from above. What, what bread do you give us? What works can you do? I mean, if Moses is great, then you got to be at least as great as Moses. So how, how, how much greater are you than Moses? What can you do for us? Do a miracle that's on par with Moses' miracle. This is a foolish demand indeed. They just saw him perform great signs. And yet they're looking for something even greater. Again, point of their motive. But Jesus sets them straight. Because first off, can't compare me with Moses. You know, and I think it's just... As a side, I think it's, it's a great note to, to, to realize is that there are intertestamental writings that after the Old Testament is written, before the New Testament is written, the writings in between that time that aren't inspired, that there were, there were writings in there that say that when the Messiah does come, he will give you bread from heaven. So they were like at these writings here that weren't scripture. They're looking at these writings that said, when the Messiah does come, he's going to give you bread from heaven. So likely it's in the back of their mind, this scripture and saying, hey, if he really is the Messiah, didn't somebody write that if he comes, he's going to give us bread from heaven? So let's compare him with that. But let's be honest. Even if he did give them manna from heaven, even if he did satisfy that foolish request, would they have believed in him? They would taste that bread and say, no, no, that's not sweet like the man in the wilderness. No, no, that's too much flour. Mm -mm. No, that's not the same bread. He could have done anything. They still wouldn't have received it. They still would have questioned him. So not only are they off comparing him with Moses because he's not compared to be with Moses, but secondly, there's error in their thinking here because Jesus corrects them very precisely in verse 32. Truly, truly, key words again. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So not only are you wrong comparing me with Moses, because I'm not on par with Moses, but not only that, that bread that you're talking about from Moses didn't come from Moses. That came from my father in heaven. So you're trying to compare, with, compare me with Moses when Moses himself did not give you that bread. My father gave that bread to satisfy them physically. And guess what? I'm giving you bread to satisfy you spiritually now. And that same bread that came from Moses from the father to earth is the same bread now that's coming now from the father to the earth to save your soul. That's the bread I'm talking about. They're trying to compare him with Moses. They're off from the start. Because Moses was just a man, he is not. The manna that's from heaven was manna that God gave. And the Father gives true bread. And so naturally, he says that this is the true bread. The bread that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This was the bread that the Father gives. That that is true bread that comes from heaven. And I love the response, verse 34. If that's the case, Lord, 
Give us always this bread. Always give us this bread. Yeah, yeah, that bread, give it to us all the time. That's the bread we're talking about. Okay, come on. Where's it at? Where is that bread? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) If that's the bread you're talking about, the verse 35, which leads us to our second reality. Not only is he the perfection of divinity, but he's the provision of eternal life. The provision of eternal life. Give us always this bread. If this is the bread you're talking about, how do you get this bread? Let me tell you how do you get it. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. That is the answer to the question. That I am the bread of life. Now, in order for us to understand this, we really need to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because that simple phrasing here is so crucial to understanding who Christ is and his mission here on earth. I am the bread of life. Let's just first start off with the first two words. I am. I am. Immediately, if you hear that word phrasing, I am, what triggers your memory from the Old Testament? I am. I am. You think of the burning bush, the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses is talking with with Yahweh, and Moses says here, okay, you want me to go out and free your people? Okay, but if if they want me, if you want me to do that, they're going to ask me, who sent me? They're going to ask, who is the God? Is it the God of of rain, the God of freedom, the God of sun? Like, which God? What is the name? What is this? And what does God say? I am who I am. The root word of Yahweh, I am who I am. In other words, you're looking for something specifically, guess what? I am encompassing, I am independent. I am self-sufficient. Anything that I can do or want to do, I will do and accomplish it. You don't need a name to claim the power. I am who I am. So what I said I will do, I will do it on my own name. I am the bread of life. When Jesus was saying, I am the bread of life, he was claiming not only divinity, he's saying, I am, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh in flesh. I am God, very God. The Jews who heard that, no doubt understood what he was going with that. To say, I am constantly throughout this book. I am, I am, his answer to the question, or I am. They knew what he was claiming, that I am God. I'm Yahweh. That I am is used in an absolute, unqualified sense to appropriate for himself the Old Testament name of God. That I am. Now notice, he's not saying that he is, I am, I'm Yahweh, as if I am the Father. He's not saying that. But he's saying he has a divine essence of the Father. Which is why he says later on, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That he is saying, I am this God. Now, we take it further. Now he says, I am, but I am the bread of life. Now, this is the first of seven highly significant statements in in John's gospel, where, where you see I am something associated with metaphors expressing Christ's work as Savior. So not only here, I am the bread of life, you see I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All throughout John's gospel, seven times, significant statements that's pointing to Christ's ministry as Savior. He's saying, I am. I am the door of the sheep. I am the great shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the only way to God. I am God, very God. All these statements, John here in the gospel is pointing that this Christ is God, very God in the flesh. And this is the very first I am statement in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. So that man in the wilderness 
that they're talking to ultimately pointed to Christ. That it, was, it pointed to Christ. In the same way God supplies and meets their physical, material needs daily in the, in, Israelites, in the Israelites in the wilderness, God here is saying here, I meet your spiritual need, that I am the bread of life, that I will not only feed you, but I will sustain you with eternal nourishment. That this is bread that I give eternally. And as a bread of life, he satisfies all spiritual hunger and thirst. Because right after that, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So as giving eternal life, this is the promise of God that he says that not only will I give you eternal life, but if you come to me, you will never hunger again. You will never thirst again. That this is a big claim here that Jesus is saying here. Is that the, the, the way he phrases it just grammatically, there's so much emphasis on the negative, the negative side that you will never thirst again. You will never hunger. He is basically saying you will have no other need spiritually. That I will satisfy every single need. That spiritually forever you will never hunger. You will never thirst. There will be nothing ever you crave. Nothing ever can meet and satisfy your need like I can. I am the bread of life. That he is the source of eternal life, but also the source of eternal pleasure. And as a bread of life, he satisfies all spiritual hunger and thirst. So why is this controversial? This is the big claim he's making here. That every hungering that you have, every thirst, you will meet it. I am who I am. I am everything that you need. To this Jewish audience here, he's saying here, no, I am the bread come down from heaven that satisfies your need. I am the door. I am the way. I am the true vine. All these things saying, I am the fulfillment. I am the essence of all the promises that your fathers looked for. So the same hand that fed them now, will you not feed it now? Will you not be fed now? We have to remember, as he's the bread of life, that we are essentially coming to him as one who has nothing. We're one who has nothing but sin. And we're one who's in need of everything. That as those who come to Christ, we have nothing to bring him but our sin and our wretchedness. And we come to him for everything. And he says, yes, come to me. I will feed and meet every single need. That this is a a great offer he gives them. That I am the bread of life. And yet here in this very passage, this offer extended to them, they don't receive it. It's baffling. They see Christ They see God in the flesh. They see God, and yet they do not receive it. That's baffling that they can see the works that he did. They can see the claims, his writings, his speech. I mean, just imagine they hear God speak. They heard God speak, and yet they did not receive it. Why? How is it that someone can witness the very works of God, see God in the flesh, hear the invitation, and not receive it? Jesus answers that very question. 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Why don't they believe? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The reason they do not believe in him is because man does not come to Jesus on their own efforts. He is drawn All are drawn to the Son by the will of the Father. This is a big cup here to drink. 
that the reason you don't come to me is that all who come to me will come to me by the will of the Father. So we'll all come to Christ? I mean, certainly not. We know that. No, not everyone will not come to Christ. Many will reject him. So then who will come to Christ? Who will believe? Verse 37, all whom the father will give to me, that's who come to Christ. All whom the father will give to him, they will come to Christ. The reason they can see God face to face and reject him is because the father did not give them to him. Many will reject him. So we know one thing to be true. All that the father gives will come. All that the father gives will come. Herein lies a deep theological working of God and salvation we're going to walk through. That those, those all who do come to Christ, they go to Christ because the father sent them there. But within the context of John, just before we kind of look at it theologically, within the context of John, you see here Jesus speaking of those whom the Father has given him constantly throughout this book. That there is a group of people that Jesus is speaking of. He said, these are the people whom the Father has given me, and I have come for them. Who is this group of people? Let's look first here. We see it in our passage here. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapter 6, verse 44, a passage we know very well, which says that no one can come to me, how? Unless the Father who has sent me draws him. No one can come to the Father unless there has something to be done. No one can come unless what? The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. So our, again, we see a few verses later, the one who comes, comes because who's, who drew them? The Father. Go to chapter 17 in, in the Gospel of John. Go over a couple chapters. You see here in Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays, a rich prayer of theological truths. He's praying here. We can see who does Jesus pray for? Who is Jesus praying for? Look at verse six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Immediately, he's praying about whom? Those whom you have given me. Go to verse nine. I ask on whom? Their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Here, Jesus is not even praying. He's not praying for the whole world. He's not praying for everybody. Jesus says himself from his own mouth, he's saying, I'm praying for those whom you have given me, not everybody, a certain group of people. This is John 6, those whom you sent to me, the one we read in this passage, all who come by the will of the Father. There's a certain group of people that Jesus is constantly alluding to. Now go to verse 24 in the same chapter 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that you, they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And in this own passage, going back to chapter 6, our passage, you see here that as Jesus is speaking in verses 36 through the end of through verse 40, the phrasing he used, all that the Father gives me in verse 37, all that the Father gives to me, back in chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Go to verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Verse 40, for this is the will of God, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I, I myself will raise him up on the last day. That phrase, everyone who beholds. All that phrasing from all that, all that, and everyone, that phrasing is singular, in number, singular in number. So there are times in scripture when all is plural, meaning many, 
But this time in this, in this, these few verses, all that is singular. All throughout John's gospel, Jesus speaking of one group. Who is this one group that Jesus has come for? Who is this one group? The all, the all, the all. This is whom I have died for. This is who I, I, I shed my blood for. This is who my body was broken for. Who is this all? It's the elect, his own, whom the father wills. This is whom the father has given him. These are not the special, the privilege. There's no one special. There's no one privilege. If that were the case, it would be none. <laughs> that none who come to you. This is not anyone special, but this is whom the father has given to the son. And this is who Jesus is speaking about in this passage. All that, all of that who come to me because the father has drawn them and given them to me. He gives an understanding how one can see Christ face to face as this crowd and yet refuse to believe in him as Lord. That no one can come to him apart from the work of God, which is the reason Jesus gives for their unbelief. Again, deep waters we're in. But briefly, let me just touch on some may say, wait, this is, this is unfair. How is this? This is unfair. You're saying there's a, there's a group of people he's speaking about who he came to, to die for. And you're saying there are others who he didn't die for? Like that's, that's, that's kind of offensive to me. Let me address some of that. I just want to briefly, I want to address some of that. Romans chapter nine, beautiful chapter on the same idea. It talks about Paul's writing here to the Romans. And he says that, that God says in chapter nine, verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Already here, Paul is speaking of that, that this is God's own words, that, that God is saying this, right? Paul's not saying this. He said, no, God has said that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And I hear that the whole terms love and hate are obviously not just talking about emotions because we see here in Old Testament that because God loved Jacob, there were blessings, covenant blessings associated with that love. And Esau, there was disassociation from that covenant because he hated him. So not that he just hated him in terms of emotions, but it was his decisive decision to disassociate him from the covenant. Now, before we go on in that, notice Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Jacob and Esau were who? Twin brothers. They're twin brothers, twin brothers. There's no one better than the other. I mean, they came from the same womb, same age, same mother, same father. They were twins. And yet God said, I love Jacob, but Esau, I hated. It was nothing that they did, nothing that they earned, had nothing to do with who they were. It was all about God's choosing to love one and hate the other. His decision to love Jacob was not contingent upon their performance. It was decided before both of them were born. So the words loved and hated are not referring to God's emotions, but his choice for one over the other. To hate someone means to reject him or to disavow any loving association with him. So Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Again, Deep waters. But in all of this, in Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes God's words to Moses right after this. And he says, in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what you're saying, he loved Jacob and hated Esau. And God is saying here, he, he, again, this is, not, this is not Paul saying this. Paul's not trying to defend God. He's just saying very briefly, very powerfully, God is saying, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's not up to you whom I love. It's none of your business whom I love. It not, has nothing to do with you from the start to the end, but all has to do with whom I have decided to have mercy upon and who I have compassion on. This is not anything with man's efforts. And there's so many things here we won't go through the sake of time, but Romans chapter 9, a rich passage on this idea. Ephesians chapter, chapters 1 and 2, again, speak of this idea of God's elect, his choosing, of having loving those whom he love. But just briefly, I think it's interesting here, as Paul is wrestling with this deep theological truth we see here, is in verse 19, of, back in chapter, Romans chapter 9, he says, well, you would say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who, for who resists his will? In other words, if you're saying that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, well, then why does God find fault with those he hates? I mean, who resists his will? I mean, if that's his will, well, hey, what's the problem then? I mean, that's, that's God's choosing, right? Paul kind of addresses that arrogant concern very, very nicely. Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? There comes a point in this discussion where we can wrestle with these theological truths, but there comes a point in time where we cannot understand in our finite, man, a finite mind the infinite mind of God. There comes a point where we have to say, who am I to talk back to God? I don't understand it completely, but I know it to be true because it's in his word. It's from the mouth of Christ. It's in the word of God. So all I can do is affirm it is true and leave the rest to God. God is a gracious God. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. And I will leave it at that. For many of us, this may be hard to accept, but nevertheless, there's some deep truths that still need to be unpacked a bit more. Now, because going back to our passage, John chapter six, Jesus here says, okay, Jesus, you just said that the one who comes to you will not hunger, right? You just said the one who comes to you will not hunger. You will not reject anyone who comes to you. But now you're saying only those whom the father gives to you. How do you reconcile that? That's because the father's election does not negate man's responsibility. The father's election does not negate man's responsibility. Notice how the father's election is paired with the promise that the one who comes to Christ will have eternal life. Man's responsibility to come to Christ is still a real necessity. That any and all who come to Christ will not be cast out. And at the same time, all who come to Christ come at the bidding of the Father. So while God is completely sovereign in his election, man is completely responsible for what he does with Christ. So those people who stood, that crowd who stood before Christ, saw the works that he'd done and rejected him will pay the price for it. Not because they weren't elect, but because they rejected Christ. Because they loved their sin, they loved the material loaves more than they loved the bread of heaven. That they will stand before their maker because they're ultimately responsible for what they did with Christ. So both are completely true. That God is sovereign, man is 100% responsible. God 100% sovereign, man 100% responsible. This is not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be God is sovereign and choosing and man chooses as well. That's a contradiction. But the tension here is that God is sovereign and man is responsible. This is what theologians call the theological tension. For example, this is not the only tension in scripture, right? Think of the Trinity, 
that we have one God in three persons, not a contradiction, it's a tension. One God in three persons. The dual nature of Christ, he is 100% man, 100% God. Not 200%, he is 100% man, 100% God. A theological tension. The inspiration of scripture, word of God from God, and yet authored by the hands of human hands. Theological tension, word of God from God, written by man. Theological tension, both are true. So what do we do with this theological tension? What do we do? God is sovereign, man is responsible. Christ is 100% God, 100% man. Scripture from God, written by man. What do we do with this tension? We don't seek to reconcile it. Don't seek to separate it. All we can do is uphold both and affirm them as true. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. Don't try to reconcile, okay, how does this make sense? Let, let me try to defend God. No, 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 God doesn't need defending. Like as Charles Spurgeon said, you just need to release the word of God. It's like a lion. It's on a leash. All I got to do is unleash it. It will do its work. I or you do not have to defend God. All we must do is uphold what he has said in his word. He will defend himself. I am who I am. Affirm both is true. John doesn't shy away from this reality of God's sovereignty. And it's because he doesn't think that human responsibility is thereby mitigated. He affirms both. So he can speak with equal ease to those who look upon the Son and believe in him. This they must do if they're to have eternal life. And those who don't, they don't. As Romans 1 says, they love their sin more than they love the Creator. Though those seem impossible to harmonize, there is no conflict between these two truths in the infinite mind of God. There's no conflict in the mind of God at these truths. Christ will not reject any who sincerely and submissively come to him. True saving faith can never be exercised in vain, but only at the prompting of the Father. So hear this, that Christ, he says, anyone who comes to me, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast aside. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. One other note is the doctrine of election is not robotic where men and women are coerced, right? We know this, they're not coerced, but rather God frees them in their bondage of sin. That he frees them to open their eyes to see who this glorious Christ is. This is not a robotic thing, but he opens their eyes to say, wow, I'm dead in my sins. That I, this is the sin I once embraced, but now I see the glorious Christ. So let me embrace him. Let me cling to him. This is a miraculous act of God where he opens the eyes of the sinner and says, wow, this is my God who saved me. So before we get tied up in the minutia, let's not walk past the second point without gratefully saying, hallelujah, that when you came to Christ, he did not reject you, but rather he embraced you warmly in his arms because you came to him with a submissive and humble heart, realizing and seeing your sin, and you saw him as a great redeemer, and Christ said, come to me. Like, hallelujah. He gave you life and life eternal, that all of us were in this bucket of death. We we're all drowned. We we're all dead in our sin. And God just reached out in that bucket and grabbed many and said, come to me. And as Ephesians 1 and 2 point out, this is all to the grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. That at the end of the day, this is not about what I choose, what I did to choose God. This is not about what I did now that I have eternal life. This is all about the glory of God. That he saves us all to the praise of his glorious grace. Believer in Christ, you're a vessel of God's grace. You're a pillar of God's grace. That you tell the story of how a God, holy God, saved an undeserved wretch like you and me. 
that God gets the glory in all of this. So if we get tied up in the fact that, okay, well, is it, is it God's choosing? Is it man's smart? Like, well, if we get tied up in that and you lose sight of the fact that God saved someone who was undeserving, you missed the point. You missed the point. You came to Christ not because you chose to come to him. There was a point in time when he opened your eyes to see the sin that you were once embracing was bitter. That the cup that you were drinking from didn't do it. That wasn't just, oh, you know, I just got tired of partying one day. No, 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 no. There was a sovereign act of God where he opened your eyes. So if we walk away from this and fail to see the marvelous grace of God that is showcased in his salvation story, my friend, I think you missed the point. So hallelujah, brother and sister, hallelujah for God's grace. Hallelujah that he opened our eyes. Hallelujah that he sent his son, the bread of life, to give us life eternal. And in that bread, we will never hunger or thirst again. Hallelujah, my brothers and sisters. Unbeliever, this request is still for you. If you have not eaten of this bread of life, if you have not received him as your Lord, if you have not bowed down to the son, this request is for you. And it's a true request. God himself says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He says, oh, come to me, come to me and eat. Come to Christ now and he will receive you warmly. If you have not done that, come to Christ now, today. Believe upon the Son. Eat of the bread of life. This is for you. He offers it to everybody. Come to the Son. The greatest blessing. Sorry, I must go to this third reality. And we'll close real briefly. The promise of preservation. The promise of preservation. Not only is is it he embodies the perfection of divinity and also the provision of eternal life, but the promise of preservation. That Jesus will not lose one of his sheep. Let's keep in mind the context. That all the Father gives to the Son will be received by the Son, right? That all the Father gives him will be received. And even more, the same group he's talking about will be preserved by the Son. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, this is a hope for us that praise God that none of his sheep will be lost. Not only do we see the doctrine of election here, but we see the doctrine of preservation. That if he saved you, he will sustain you. And that is a blessing because he says, I will lose none of that sheep. Because if that sheep was given to the son, Christ himself says, I will hold you. We won't look at it for the sake of time. But John chapter 10 talks about Christ says that the sheep, they are in my hand and they will not come out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He also said they're in the father's hand. No one will snatch them out the father's hand. Believer in Christ, you are in the hand of God. Nothing can rob you from his hand. And this is Jesus' promise. Because if this does not happen, if one of the sheep Jesus loses, then he either did not do a good job of it. And that is a horrid thing to think about. Christ does all that the Father gives to him. He completes the will completely so that no one is lost. So that Christ here will raise your physical body and you will be raised with a glorified, perfected body like his son. That there will come a day, as we read about this morning, where Christ will raise the dead. And those who are in him, he says, I will lose none of them. That's why Jesus says, I leave the 99 for the one. Because that whole flock will be preserved. They're in my hand. I will lose none of them. 
Your salvation is secure, not because your faith is so strong, but because your Savior is. That he will keep you. That all who have tasted of Christ receive the bread of life, namely Jesus. They were drawn by the sovereign working of the Father, but they are kept by Christ indefinitely. Make no mistake that the great, the great shepherd loses not one of his sheep. That he will raise him up on the last day. In this weighty passage, we see a group of people faced with the same reality that we're faced with this morning. That this Christ is the Son of God. That he embodies perfection of divinity, provision of eternal life, and promise of preservation. As, you, as we've seen clearly, there's no, no room for someone to say they have tasted from the bread of life and then walk away from it. There's no room for someone to say they have truly tasted from the bread of life and to say they no longer follow that Christ. That tells me you never tasted the bread of life. And John himself talks about in 1 John that those who went out from us, they went out so they can tell us that shows us that all who are among us are not of us. So even John here is clearly saying here, there's no room. If you left, you never tasted it. So cease your efforts and behold the Son of God, and you will live, he says. That all who believe, all who behold the Son and believe in him will have eternal life. This is an offer for all. It means, that, it means what Christ said, it says, what he says is that and if you believe in me, if you behold the Son, if you believe and embrace in me, you will be saved. Believe all that he is, it means to believe. That to believe that he's a savior of the world. That he bore the sin and wrath of God so that all who look to him and trust in him, turning from their sin, will be saved. This offer is for all. If you believe in the son, today can be your salvation. Believe, turn from your sin that was empty and dry and look to him. Isaiah 55, obviously pointing ahead to Christ, he says, Let everyone who thirsts come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and come eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. You can't do anything for it, but just come to him freely, because the cost has already been paid in his son. If you don't have Christ this morning, come now to the bread of life. Feast upon him. He says, behold me and you will have eternal life and I will raise you up in the last day. That's the promise. Come now. Because what you're drinking of now is vain. It's empty, he says. But I give you eternal life and I will satisfy. Briefly, believer, let me remind you that the bread of life has been granted to you by the gracious gift of the Father. So not only does your delight in him never cease, but never let your awe of him ever cease either. Never lose awe of this great God who saved you by his miraculous grace. Never lose sight of this God who gave you life and bread eternal. So no matter the outcome of the physical election coming up a couple of days, no matter the outcome of whatever is in your life, our sustenance, our hope is not in anything here. Our hope is in the bread of life. Let's feast upon that. Do we need anything better? Do we need anything more? He is our bread of life. Father God, we have so much here that I wish we could talk about more, God, but you are sovereign, Lord, and your word accomplishes its purpose. So I pray that it would in each individual heart and soul this morning that you and you alone, God, would be the sole focus of our hearts. So be glorified in everything that is done. And Lord, I pray as a bread of life that we would long and seek for nothing else but you. We thank you for this hope that we have in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.